Welcome back to Recorded Conversations, the podcast that's dedicated to compassionately considering all perspectives while engaging in authentic, connected dialogue. I'm Danielle Kingstrom, and today, my husband Corey joins. Is what she said. What? That is what she said. It is what she said. That's what she said. That is what she said. What did she say? I don't know. Me neither. Hey, babe. Hey. So there's been chatter. 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 Did you know? If you don't know, I'm going to tell you now. Okay. I have a Tinder account. Oh, my. I did know. You did know? I did know. What about you? I do have one. You have a Tinder account, too? I do. So now that we're sharing everything and putting it out in the open. Yes. Because we've been hiding it from each other this long. This brings up another question I actually have for you. There there have been rumors, I have whispers, maybe, our marriage is struggling. I just wanted to clarify if that was actually true or not. Um, really? There's issues with our marriage, Yeah. Well, if we're addressing it, are we addressing it out of defense because we're insecure? Yes, I am very insecure. Me too. I'm so insecure. That's actually been what, both in the cyber world and in the real world. I know people don't like that distinction, but there's been a lot of concern about the state of our marriage and questions pertaining to whether or not, well, first of all, Corey, do you know I write for Patheos Progressive Christian? I do. I you you actually, did know that. Yes. Okay. I do. And I read ninety percent of your articles. I would say like ninety-eight percent. You're pretty good about reading my articles. I do miss one from time to time though. You probably miss the boring one, so it's okay. Also, Corey, did you know? Maybe today's just you finding out, but I also have a podcast. This podcast No kidding. Recorded conversations. I'll be damned. Weird, huh? But I just, I just want to make sure you know all of the things that I do in my life because there's been a lot of concern about, I don't know whether you're even involved and know anything, so. I'm going to tell you a little secret. Oh, okay. I know everything. You know everything. <laughs> yes, you do. Do you know everything about me? That's a trick question, I'm afraid. No, honestly, do you know everything about me? I believe so. Really? I believe so. You don't think there's any mystery left to me whatsoever? You don't th no, think that... there's something new that you can discover? I think there's a distinction between that, though. Oh, do tell. <laughs> <laughs> I think I know everything that I need to know. That's good. There's always mystery. I never... I, sometimes I still wonder which wife I'm going to wake up to in the morning. You have a couple of them? <clears throat> no, at least. Not because there's additional women, y'all. That's metaphorical. Yet. Um, um <laughs> get to that later. The wife I wake up to is not necessarily the wife I come home to. True that. She goes through a lot of shit in her day. She's got to go through a different persona to handle all of the processing. That just sounded like... That was some just cop-out shit, really, if I'm being Jordan. honest. Shut up. Really? You know we're moody. All women are moody. We're like the moon. We're cyclical. 
It's true. So just so everybody knows, we're good. This is... Uh, most days. Most days we are good. But we're also transitioning still. I mean, all people are. We're all going on our journeys. But I think right now we are really intentionally peeling back some calcified layers, maybe. Some constructs. Some ideas about what relationship looks like, what monogamy is and why it's prescribed and whether or not that's beneficial for everybody and what we can handle, where we can push our boundaries, what we can experience and discover inside and outside parameters that we've set for ourselves and that society has set and is always going to be a process and all relationships are a process. It's like a verb. You're constantly doing things in a relationship. It's not stagnant and non-changing. Well, at least it shouldn't be. That's very true. And then we're probably not going to share all of our secrets in this podcast. No. Or any. Or any secrets. Because we like to be mysterious and it's none of your business. But I will say that it is through this process we... I know for myself I'm having to deal with some demons that I have that... uh, I think I've pushed off in the past and hopefully we will uh, get through that and work some of that out for me personally, at least. Yeah, you actually kind of psychoanalyzed me the other night and helped me break through some things that I was questioning because what I've been, so I had a couple of tarot readings I participated in that really resonated with a lot of things that were going on in my life that happened to kind of be juxtaposed with this idea of eclipse and concealing and revealing. And I've written about this too, and I've even, I've told you and I've told other people, I feel like I got to a point where I was really overexposing myself and I wanted to cover back up. And I was clamoring to maybe constructs and concepts that I thought were, were actually the right ones for me because a lot of this is just really scary. And when you push yourself to really think deeper about relationships and how you interact with them, it triggers how you've interacted with previous relationships. And so you've been really helping me kind of scrape away at some things. So like the accident thing that you brought up, I had never, ever considered it in the way that you did. And so break that down. What did you see? I'm trying to Do you get remember? My, I, I kind of remember. I'm trying to get Okay, so a little background. Space. In November 93, I was 12. I was in a car accident two and a half houses away from my house when I lived in downtown Minneapolis. I flew through the windshield. I was lodged in the windshield. I had uh, head trauma. I had stitches and plastic surgery. I lacerated my spleen. I broke my arm. I was in the hospital. And then I was on bed rest. And... That was my first introduction into psychotherapy, psychology, uh, neuropsychology, even understanding what a a neurologist is and the performances and procedures of that and understanding brain trauma, which is odd because I learned about brain trauma and then today we're going back to when I learned about brain trauma so that I can work out trauma. Yeah, and I guess the the point I brought up is you were with your dad. My dad was driving. (laughs) And that was the, the that was a very traumatic experience for you. And and what we were discussing at the time was, why do you always need an exit strategy? Was basically yeah, 
Backup plans, plan B. Yeah, backup plans, plan B when it comes to relationships and and things like that. In any kind of commitment. I need an out. I need to know an out. Like, even when I book a podcast recording, I think of an excuse to get myself out of it in the event that I change my mind about it. Yep. So so I brought up, and it was like a light bulb. It was just, I, I, I realized it in an instant. And it was your accident because... You were with someone who was supposed to keep you safe. Mm-hmm. And by no means am I blaming your dad. Yeah. But you were in an, an accident where he was supposed to keep you safe and he didn't. Yeah. And so now I think it's possible that you are always looking for your exit strategy so that you won't hurt. Mm. You know, what's really interesting about the accident itself, too, is legally speaking... My dad was to blame. Uh, So I took my dad to court and I took Castle Rock Productions to court because they were filming Little Big League. Their production truck hit me, ran the red light. But I had to sue my dad and that created a fight for my parents. That was probably a personal, like attack for my dad and then to have it like legally i'm suing my dad i'm saying my dad is responsible for what happened blah 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 so anyway just adding a little bit of context to that um i don't remember knowing how to feel back then about it i didn't blame my dad my dad i remember at one point when i was in and out of consciousness my dad being there right after it happened and just sobbing over me and i had never seen my dad cry And I know he was holding a lot of heavy stuff, but like I didn't, I was 12, so I didn't know how to process it. And it's really weird is because we don't, when we're kids and something traumatic happens to us, we don't know how to process it. We don't, most of us don't even have like the cognitive development to understand what we've gone through when it's traumatic. And so for me, it was like, I got a bad owie. I had to rest up and heal. I became like the most popular kid at school that year. Because everybody wanted to know who I was because they made this big announcement and all the teachers were like, well, I have counseling available. And I had friends who were just shattered and, and so upset. And it was such a surreal moment for me because I was always nobody. I was always invisible. I was always kind of anti crowd click and, and being noticed. And suddenly I was like thrust into like a spotlight on top of it. So it's like, I didn't, I didn't even process. It was almost like a... It was almost like a cool thing that the car accident happened to me. And so probably a lot of the psychological things that I should have been processing, I didn't. And that's what we do. But then as we grow and develop and experience new things and have new relationships, we have activated triggers all the time, pulling traumas up from our past going, well, now we're ready to heal this. Now we're ready to look at this in the scope of things and all of the experiences lined up and go, do you see what's going on now? And so it's just really interesting that you said that because I've, I've always said that I, I have a fear of commitment. Yeah. I, and I really don't hold a lot of trust for people. And that's one of the things I also talk to you about too, your brother on my angst towards him is that, so your family has always propositioned you with ultimatums to choose them over me. And you've always said, okay, well, if you're going to make me choose, I choose her. So I think I have it in the back of my head that at some point you're actually going to go with them. And you're going to choose them. And I think that's why I hate them so much. Because I'm just waiting for you to just go one day. You know what? I haven't, I've had enough of your crazy shit. We don't. Bye. My, my family was right. I think I'm just waiting for that. And even thinking on that makes me think about 
when my parents were going through a divorce and both of them, my family was right about you. My family was right about you. My, it was that back and forth. I just remember that too. And it's like those little moments can be plucked and archived in such an alignment with everything else for us to like later work out. It's kind of amazing actually. So in the midst of all of that, it kind of helped me look at things differently. And I think I literally jumped back on Tinder after that, like feeling like all of a sudden confident and renewed because I had started going, okay, this is something I have to process and reflect on now. This is probably a part of some of my other insecurities that I have as we're talking about we don't even have a term for it yet, whether it's open marriage, where it's ethical non-monogamy, whether it's engaging in a polyamorous relationship. If it's just meeting people who are already doing this just to talk to them and gain experience from them and do nothing right now, I mean, we don't know. We don't have an expectation. It's a flow that we're just trying to adjust for. But I think I felt like a little bit of confidence in going, okay, I can still take baby steps, but they don't have to be like really small baby steps because now I understand this part and this part a little bit better. Yeah, and it could just be friendships too. Yeah. Where, yeah, it can, who knows? No expectations, but, you know. It's such a taboo topic to even talk about. Like, I feel really reserved just sitting here and like, we're not like this when we're talking together. Like, we presuppose things and we fantasize out loud and we talk about what ifs and could something like this happen. But it's a really strange environment to talk about this and also still be concerned for consequence. Mm -hmm. And and how is this going to impact other people? And the reality is, outside of our direct family, our children, this doesn't have to impact anybody else. And maybe that's why I want to talk about it so much and why I write about it. Why I want to write more about it is because the reality is that's how it is with all of our sexuality. What we do in our bedrooms with whomever we choose and consent to doing things with, that is our business. And if we share it, that's a luxury for you. We're not boasting of it. We're trying to help you see there are so many layers of humanity and love that we shouldn't just like outright reject them just because they're not, you know, in line with status quo thinking. That's very well summarized. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a summarizer. Well, you no, I'm talks. not. I speak in paragraphs. Yes. And that's just the way I roll. That is very true. It's been a while since I've been on your podcast. It has been a long time, and I'm sure people thought, like, I replaced you with some random Tinder guy. Maybe. I don't know. Let them talk, though. I think it's kind of fun. There have been some specific things said, I think, like, that were chosen selectively to be said in such a way to goad you, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we don't have to name names or anything, but... So, we live in a small rural town in Minnesota, and, yeah, you know... Everybody knows everybody, and um, most of my shit is public. I don't hide anything. That's kind of about, you know, promoting an authentic nature. I have to be transparent, and I want to be transparent, but I also don't want to overexpose myself and set myself up for either exploitation or, you know, ghastly criticism. I mean, I invite criticism always because I want to make sure that I'm thinking about things from all perspectives, but... Um, I lost my train of thought. Where was I going, honey? 
So that's what happens when you spend too, t- too much time building the clock. Then you, you don't know what time you're it is. You're talking about things being said around mm. town. So what was something said to you, sweetie? Uh, just that you had a Tinder account and whether or not you had found a boyfriend yet or not. Yeah. And I, and I basically just ignored it. Yeah. And didn't even acknowledge it other than if you want to know about it, you know, listen to your podcast. Right. Read your articles. Read my stuff. Stalk me on Facebook. Yeah. Oh, but some of those people actually can't. They're blocked. But that's just because they're nosy and like to exploit people. And I'm not for exploiting people. I have... I, anybody could do that. I mean, with screenshots today, you can exploit anyone. You can throw anyone under the bus. You can shame people left and right, but I'm not about that. And that would be just such a contradiction to my values. I mean, you've heard some of the things I've fantasized about saying and doing, like in response, just to, you know, just to spite people a little bit and kind of give them something to talk about Mm -hmm. and be a little like flagrant back at them just to be just as in- insensitive to them as they were trying to be towards us. hmm Yeah. But I get like that. That's my ego. And then you give me space for her to vent and then remind me that that's mean. And I shouldn't yep. say things <laughs> like that. And I know that's true. So. Yep. So it's, it's just a way that I process. You let me process. I'll let you yell at me if you need to, even if it has nothing to do with me. Yeah. But I think that's important in relationships. You need to I'm your lightning rod, whether I want to be or not. Yeah. Well, but I don't think people even establish that as a role for anyone. You know what I mean? Like, how... And we often have these conversations, and we wonder out loud, and I'm not saying we're the only ones that are like this, but it seems that there are so many people that just don't talk to one another. Like, you've been married 10 years, you guys don't talk to each other about this stuff? Or everything is so separate. Like, oh, they do these things, and we do these things, and I do these things, and we don't do these things together, and it's so disconnected and compartmentalized, and I don't understand that. But, yeah, we have to, we have to tell each other what we want. Like, I've talked about this before. I've had people tell me, like, well, blah, 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 my partner this, and da-da-da, and then, and then, you know, you say, have you told them that? Well, no. Don't you think they should know that? If you want them to know that, then tell them. Give them that information, and don't withhold it from them, because our partners aren't mind readers. Whatever expectations we are even bringing into a relationship, if we do, if your partner doesn't know what your expectations are, you don't know where your boundaries are. And relationships need boundaries, especially when they're starting to first grow. They do need boundaries. And as they grow and strengthen, just like returning annuals, they need more space to grow. And I think that's where we're at right now. Like, we need more space to grow. We need more outlets. We need more connections. And we need to be able to trust that other people can hold intimate space for us. Because sometimes it is overwhelming. Sometimes it's just not conducive to our schedule either, and that's okay, and that doesn't take away from us. So, like, the common myth is that, especially for polyamorous relationships or even open marriages, is that when you're giving love to someone else, that must mean you're taking away from your partner, right? And I never understood this idea that if we're to be like God, who has this, like, 
uncontrollable, unlimited amount of love that just keeps growing and, 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 and spreading out like the cosmos. Why can't we do that? Aren't we capable of that too? It's like something Octavio Paz wrote about, whom I love. I love his philosophy on eroticism and love, but he gets down to this exclusivity of love. And I understand that in the beginning of a relationship when you're growing it, I think monogamy is very important for that so that you can learn to trust one another and that you can learn how to integrate your lives with each other, right? And so you want things to be in sync and in harmony and you're incorporating a brand new person into everything you do in your life. That's difficult. You need to have constraints around that because you're forming a foundation. Like when you're pouring foundation, you still need a frame around it before it's set and ready to handle more weight and more structure. And so we need that. But what happens when we start building onto the foundation? You get to take the frame away. And sometimes we add on. So we create new frames. And I kind of think that's where we're at. And I mm -hmm. like that. But there needs to be evolution. And with that evolution, there can't be exclusivity. And I'm at the point where I'm like, God is an inclusive God. God loves all. Aren't we to love all? And whether or not you believe that's like the entire world you love is Jesus, I don't. I think you can only love people in your proximity. I think you can only love people that you have a direct, intimate connection with. And that is where you're supposed to love your neighbor as you love yourself. I'm not saying sleep with every freaking person you meet or try and, I, I don't even know, create best friends out of every person you meet. What I'm saying is, is if we don't allow an evolution of how we love other people to take place, it limits us. And an unlimited loving God, I don't believe, would want us to limit our love. I think that would be selfish. And I don't, let's, let's clarify something though. I don't, this isn't about sex. No. This is about intimacy. Intimacy, yeah. Which may or may not include sex. And so I think that is, we're not out looking to have sex with other people. We are out looking to have a relationship Yeah. with other people. Yes. And what that looks like, I don't know. I want to be honest here, though, and I don't know if you're comfortable with this, but kind of, yes, there is that sex aspect, too. But I think that is... So when someone comes out of a divorce, they feel like they're out of the game. And I know that's a common concern with newly divorced people is like, I haven't had sex with a different person in 20 years and da-da-da-da-da. And it's going to be different for me. And how is that going to be? And so when you take that idea and kind of mold it with what we're looking at right now... I think that's kind of where we're at. We're like, is that possible? Can, and how would I do that? And what would that be like? And does that need a formed relationship around it? Because I think while I value intimate connection surrounding love and sex, I don't think it's a, it's a requirement. And so like something I heard, I was listening to this author, Jason Stotts, and he talked about this too. And it was that you can have pleasurable sex with another person without there being love. But like most of us, after we have sex with someone, we develop a relationship. And that happened for us. We had sex right away. I mean, you told me no the first night, but I think like the second or third night, I, I bed you. So, <laughs> yeah, I did that. 
No. Um, but we developed a relationship after that. And I mean, in the beginning, I was like, this is just sex, buddy. Like, the, we're not doing anything here. And I was very callous about it. And I wanted it separate. I didn't want to get emotionally attached. I just wanted to be like, look, I, there's a transition in my life right now. You're not going to be a part of it, but I will take advantage of this and have this connection and, and, and you for a little bit. And then you're just a number to me. But then we came back together and we did develop a relationship. So I'm not saying that sex can't create a relationship and that intimacy and connection can't come from it. But I also question whether or not I could be comfortable with just sex. And in questioning that comfort, I think, yeah, I mean, I'm asking a deeper question. Like, is that something I want to explore again just to see if it's something we can do? But then there's the component of you. Being with another woman is a lot for me to register. And you have already thought about me with another man because I already cheated on you. And so this isn't cheating. This isn't infidelity. This is this is choice and consent and agreement. It's still fucking scary because I do still have that programming. And I do have infidelity of my past where I was cheated on, where it really really hurt me and made me distressful. So that's just a lot to think about and to explore. And so, I mean, what we, we were, we were joking a little bit about it, but we were like, maybe we should just go break the ice with someone else. And I tried to imagine you doing that. And it was just so much for me. And it was so scary. But at the same time, I've been in a place where I've looked at it and I've said, it's just sex. And like, that's what it was when you were in Iraq. I just wanted to get laid. I just wanted to have sex. And you were forgiving of that. Why couldn't I reciprocate that forgiveness? Even if I gave you, like, I was like, do it, go do it. Here's your permission. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But then I struggle with the permission thing. Don't I? Mm-hmm. Yes. Do you want to expand on that? No. Why? Okay, I'm good. You're on my podcast. You're supposed to talk. Because <laughs> you know what you're going to do is you're going to listen back to this and you're going to be like, you talked a lot. Yeah. Like, I didn't that. even talk. It was like I wasn't even on your podcast. But I get told all the time by you that I don't listen. So I'm trying to. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> using my words against me. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, it goes back with for permission with you. Yeah, sometimes it's a good idea, sometimes it's not. So I'm to the point where I just have to be patient. This has been psychotically bipolar, though, hasn't it? Oh, yeah, it's ridiculous. I mean, and not on your end, me. Yes. It's all me. Like, I'm constantly changing my mind. I have been yelled at so many times because of this. And accused. And accused. Yes, and blamed. And Mm -hmm. I've tried to act like this is the reason why I'm falling apart and I can't focus and just random stuff. Yeah, it's it's heavy. It's not for the faint of heart. I mean, and that's why I think this is not for a brand new relationship. This is for an established relationship. I don't even know if it's for us. Exactly. Like, we could get to a point where we're like, hey, we found a couple. We're going to go meet them. And then we meet them and we're like, this is fucking wrong. Let's go home. Mm-hmm. Or we could meet them and be like, I'm not feeling this, but the other one is. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, we can't have expectations. Yep. 
And as with any relationship, you shouldn't have too many expectations. I understand people push back on that and they're like, I can have an expectation that my partner will be monogamous. But you need to establish that that's what you both want then. When you walk into it with an expectation, you're thinking they want in value and 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 have a standard for everything that you do. And unless you're talking about that and really laying it out on the table and comparing notes, you don't know that for sure anyway, which is why people cheat on one another. If you and just look at divorce rate. Yeah, it's 52% in the United States. Divorce rates are ridiculous and I, I think a lot of that could be resolved just by pe- couples talking to one another. Talking or even just screaming at each other. I mean, sometimes we have to hold space for that loudness. The other thing I would like to point out is of that 48% non-divorce rate, how many of those couples can honestly say they're truly happy? Yeah. I mean, how how many of those couples are miserable, but they don't, they believe in their vows and they're going to stay with their partner no matter what? Oh God, I have so many family members and marriages like that now. It's just about honoring their vows. They're not happy. You know, there's no... There's no sexual joy whatsoever. They barely have anything in common, but they have children together. Or because I made a vow, or because my father left and abandoned us, so I won't do that to my family. And those mentalities. Like, even um, I know someone personally who will not end an unhappy marriage simply because he doesn't want to put his youngest two children through what his two eldest children went through. You know, which was chaos through a separate relationship. And so there are people who have had previous experiences that say, I don't want to repeat that, so this must be the better option. Not knowing that there is a potential even to heal within that relationship. But not all people can heal everything either. I mean, that's why people get divorced. Why you and Annie got divorced, which Mm -hmm. I'm thankful for. And yes. grateful that I never got married because I was one of those, I'm never getting a divorce kind of people. And so I probably would have sat through a very unhappy marriage just because of the principle of divorce was horrible for me. But I was in that category too that said I will never get divorced. Yeah. And I got divorced. Yeah. So So we I change mean, our mind all the time. So that's a good way to go back to what we were talking about, how I change my mind a lot. And it's been difficult, but we do that. Like, that's normal in a relationship to change your mind. It's normal to even give approval for something and then withdraw that approval. And we can give consent and then we can take it away. And when you're dancing in environments like this, where you're thinking about, like, opening up the boundaries of your marriage, we still have that right to go back and forth and say, you know what, this is too much for me. I'm a little scared right now. And it's because traumas are trying to work themselves out. Because the particular thing that we don't really discuss that I remember Dr. Goth talking about and kind of confirming was we all have PTSD from like our whole lives and it comes up all the time. We are always activated by traumas and depending upon how mature we are in our journey, we'll have kind of like picked up all of these different tools and other experiences that will help us deal with it. But having a partner that is willing to hold space for you and listen to you and also hear you and understand you and in your instance, psychoanalyze you, can help you work out those traumas. And that's why vulnerability is so important in in making sure that we're being authentic with each other is 
We can't hide things from each other. That's where the problems come up. Very true. And that's probably why men turn to porn. I still don't think that's all bad. It can be problematic. Yeah. But it's not entirely all bad. Porn isn't all bad. No. No. And I've been engaged in a few discussions about porn recently. And I've just been following... I've been following a lot of research that Dr. David Lay has been sharing. Just new information and new data that becomes available that kind of debunks the porn addiction and sex addiction theory. And, um, yeah, I mean, I've had people tell me that they know porn is bad. And I'm like, why is porn bad? Like, what is bad about porn per se? And I understand the arguments where people believe that uh, porn is wrapped up in the sex trafficking industry. But that's not, I don't, I I just, I can't wrap my head around that. Because here's the thing. Sex trafficking has to be private. It's done under the radar. It's done through back doors and you know, cryptic emails and text messages, these people are not exploiting their, their products, their property. You know, I, I just, I don't see that happening. I know that there are instances when, you know, um, somebody's being exploited and someone has to make a contact to somebody and be like, take that down. But I mean, there's revenge porn all over YouTube. I don't see anyone trying to shut YouTube down. There's revenge porn all over Twitter. I don't see anyone trying to shut Twitter down. But when you get down to, I look at porn as an education tool, and I look at porn as a stimulant. I mean, and we all use stimulants, and we all use substances to help us get in certain moods. And that's what porn is for me, personally. It's a stimulant. It's a, I have too much noise in my head. I'm stuck in mommy mode. I've been overanalyzing things. I've been breaking down new concepts I've been researching. I'm stressed about my in-laws. Whatever. I'm missing you. And I'm equally frustrated and turned on by you. And so there's this confliction. And I turn to porn to, hi, present moment, Danielle. Wake up. Do you feel? Do you feel the energy flowing? And that helps me. And that is how it's always been. The first time I was introduced to porn even, where I actually watched a video, I think I was 12 or 13, my parents accidentally left Aladdin in the VCR. And I woke up Saturday morning and I popped it in. Aladdin. And I I was the only one up. No one else was up. And I popped it in and hit play. And it was a very different take on Aladdin. And a magic carpet ride, okay? (laughs) And I watched about two or three minutes of it, and I remember it arousing me. And I stopped it. I didn't watch it. And I knocked on my parents' door. And I said, that's an interesting Aladdin. Mom, here you go. And she kind of was like... And I heard her shut the door and say, God damn it, Scott. You left it in the VCR. And I laughed. And I mean, in that... That was when we lived in a house where my bedroom was under them. And I was a little brat to my parents when they had sex. I would grab a broom and start pounding on the on my ceiling. And I'd say, hey, I'm trying to sleep down here. And you know what they would do? They would get louder. They would blare their music. And it was like... It was like my dad was almost like taunting me. And then I would be like, gross, and I would, you know, plug my ears or turn my music up, and nothing would be said the next day, but 
neither here nor there. So that is how I have always identified porn. It stimulated me. It wasn't something I was like, hey guys, on the bus, like, you know what I watched the other day? That wasn't something I was also sharing with people. But then it was also as I got older and, and I would hear boys talking about it in school, I'd be like, yeah, it's not a big deal, you know? Um, but I think it also teaches men how to please women. And I think it gives a wider scope to what pleasure is, period, for both men and women. I think it, I think it's almost empowering of women's pleasure because porn is like the only kind of media that shows you like where and how and for how long to take care of a woman. You know what I mean? Because like we, who's teaching, who's teaching men that? And I actually, I think it could be in almost like every porn video, the woman has an orgasm. Yeah. Yeah. How is that not empowering for a woman? And how many women are stepping up to porn for the first time going, is that what that thing is called? Is that, is, okay, I have never had that. And are going to their husbands, uh, honey, come here. You know, I've heard stories about that. I've read stories about that. It's like, it's funny to think about, but at the same time, you're like, it's a great idea. And I'm not going to lie. I get lots of ideas from porn. Mm -hmm. Lots of them, people. So many different ideas. But, and I was saying this to someone earlier too. And I said, I know that porn tends to push the boundaries and moves a little toward like both degrading and depraved kind of things. But I mean, that's not really common. But what it does is I think if you really think about it, it will take urinating on your lover, for instance, right? And so like what Donald Trump was accused of doing that with Putin and whatever golden showers. And I remember giggling about that because in the past, I've had boyfriends who have asked that of me. And I was like, that's fucking weird. No, thanks. But one of the things that I really thought about was like, you need to be in a seriously vulnerable position to ask that of someone. I know they say like, oh, it gives men these false expectations about porn. How many men are really watching porn and then on the first night with a woman are going, Can do you want to pee on me? <laughs> you know, how about anal sex this evening? I know we've never done anything. I mean, that's not what's happening. But I think what it's, it's developing is like, look at how advanced you can get in this art of lovemaking. I guess it kind of sounds funny calling it lovemaking when it's porn. The art of fucking, because it's a goddamn art. You you develop this shit. But here is, you know, here's where you can evolve to. And you get to look at all of the scope of these different ideas and expressionisms and go, that doesn't look like anything I'd ever want to do. So I can just go ahead and pluck that off the table and you know, I've never done this. And what does it inject into the relationship? Creativity, discovery, and you're exploring more about each other. And you're, that is intimate. You're seeing into each other. You're seeing what feels good for each other. That is very intimate. And again, very revealing. And another thing I want to point out too, just because this is really important because we make a lot of like false allegations against people your fantasy, your sexual fantasy says nothing about your mental state. The thing is, is like the people who are really depraved, the people who suffer mentally from sexual depravity, they have very simple two-dimensional sexual fantasies. They're not weird. And I think that we need to remember that there are some forms of artistic expression that are supposed to push us into thinking uh, I don't even know if, how I should respond to this because I'm scared to, because it tests our limits. 
it just tests our limits and it creates a, a just a wider scope of a lens to to see i think more than anything the spectrum this does please some people it doesn't please all people this does please some people it doesn't please all people you know so we we don't need to judge that we don't need to automatically assume if a dude wants to lick on your toes while he while he's getting you aroused there's nothing wrong with him if someone wants to have anal sex with you it's not because they're gay you know it's not because they're hiding something it's not because they were molested it's just it's because people are curious and they trust in you enough to go to a next level so anyway i just wanted to kind of talk about that. For more information on that very particular point, though, I would recommend any of Dr. David Lay's work, whom I'm going to try and get on the show in the next few weeks if possible. So You should recommend he listen to this podcast. I know. I should. This one, this very episode. This episode. Okay, so I, I might be able to do that. I don't know. My Tinder one's been pretty popular, though, too. So Chronicles of Tinder. I may have listened to that one. Yeah? Twice. Twice? Yeah. The first time you listened to it angrily. Maybe. Yeah. And then the second time it was to reprocess and reflect? Possibly. Yeah. Because it kind of, it was unexpected for you. Yes, it was. Why so? Uh, I, I think just because I, I would have liked a little heads up on that. Like, hi, honey, I'm telling everybody I'm on Tinder. Something like that. Okay, Trump. Here, let's read this headline because this was funny and I kind of just want to talk about it. President Trump says he is all for masks amid COVID-19 pandemic. And in an interview with Fox Business, the president questioned the necessity of making face masks mandatory, but said he would wear one if he were in a tight situation with people nearby. I'm all for masks. I think masks are good, Trump said, adding that he looked like the Lone Ranger when he wore one. His comments come after prominent Republican figures publicly advocated for the use of face masks. So here's my question. If Trump starts wearing a mask, will all Republicans follow suit? I don't know. I, I'm just not that political. But really. you see that there's an obvious divide of yeah. mask wearers and non-mask wearers and where they fall on the political spectrum. Yep. So what happens when Trump is seen wearing a mask... I want to know if they're going to keep recording him after he puts the mask on, after the press conference is over. Will someone keep rolling like they did with Dr. Fauci and show that he's actually just pulling it down right after he's done recording, proving that the masks are kind of just for show? But Trump starts wearing the mask. Everyone's like, you know, I'm I'm for Trump, so I'm wearing a mask because he's my mimetic model and I need to do everything he does. And then all the Republicans start wearing the masks. Do the Democrats ditch the masks? I don't know. If they don't, are they in agreement with Trump? Or are they going to take credit and go see the influence we had over Trump? It could go either way. You're not being really fun about this. I'm sorry. I just honestly don't care. What, what, <laughs> what do you care about right now? I think that a lot of the COVID-19 stuff is overblown. Um, there's been a lot of whistleblowers come out about the death toll and how the numbers are being fudged. Yeah. Um. Antibody numbers versus actual positive. I'm talking about deaths. Oh. Oh, yeah. Well, we knew that. They were reporting on that back in mid-May. 
Exactly. You know, um, antibody numbers, I mean, it would not surprise me if 50% of the U.S. population has had COVID-19. Wouldn't surprise me in the least. No, but now they're telling us that there's a new flu coming out of China that looks like the swine flu and what was the other one? It was a combination of two. Oh, the 1918 flu that we can't call the Spanish flu anymore, but it was the Spanish flu. That's what we used to call it. I I think we just call it the pandemic now, the 1918 pandemic, not Spanish flu. Sorry about that, guys. I do have one thing about COVID-19, though. You know, when, when they first shut everything down, the whole economy and shut states down, it was it was to flatten the curve. When did it go from flattening the curve to ending the curve? Like, we're just supposed to prevent anybody from getting in. I thought it was just to reduce... Make sure that the healthcare system wasn't overwhelmed. Yeah, and what did we see in so many states? People were laying people off. Hospitals were sitting empty. That big Navy ship that they brought in wasn't even utilized at all. This year is, is just ridiculous. And social engineering at its finest, really. Really, it is. Because when wearing a mask can become a political thing, when the safety of, of people that other people allegedly want for us becomes political and becomes an action of threat of force. I just, I don't, like, I don't even understand what's going on anymore. Yeah, pretty much. I'm going to live in my bubble. Uh, Yeah, exactly. That's why it's better to live in a bubble and have more sex. Honestly, I'm going to continue to advocate for that. I think more fucking less fuckery. (laughs) That was a good one. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Well, we should end it at that. Okay. Okay. Yes. And with that, we bid you adieu.